Welcome to another inspiring message from Pastor John Cameron, lead pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will empower and inspire you. Exodus chapter 12, our first verse is verse 3. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat the whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide each animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. This is all you, eat, all you can eat ribs right here. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night they must eat they must roast the meat over a fire and eat along with it bitter salad greens. Every child agreed with those three words. And bread made without yeast. This is a really key passage of scripture for us in our faith. It is recording for us the first ever Passover. It's important for us to note the context of this, and that is that Israel was God's chosen nation, and at this time, Israel was living as slaves to another nation called the nation of Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt. And the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. They had been there for 400 years, arrived in the land of Egypt as a family tribe. And during 400 years, they continued to grow until now they are literally a nation of millions of people. God comes along through a man by the name of Moses and he proclaims through Moses to Pharaoh, I want you to let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says, was hard. And so he said, I will not let them go. These people are producing for me wealth and livestock. They are, they are my worker bees. They are building my pyramids. I'm not actually sure about that, but it sounds good in a sermon. He said, I will not let these people go. Why would I let my slaves go? And God said, because they are my chosen people. The Bible says that Pharaoh continued to resist until eventually God gave to Pharaoh an ultimatum. Either let you let my firstborn go, or I will take your firstborn from you. And in one night, the Bible says an avenging angel covered the land of Egypt, and every home lost their firstborn son. God said, this is my last act. It is not my desired will, but I am serious about my people being set free. And if you will not let them go, these are the consequences of the action. Yet the Bible tells us that even in the middle of this amazing judgment, that God made a way, a way for the angel of judgment to pass over. He said, when the angel passes over, if you will take the blood of a one-year-old lamb, perfect, faultless, without defect, and take its blood 
and put it on the doorpost and on the lentil of your front door into your home, then the angel of judgment will pass over your house. This is amazing because it is a big setup in the Bible, not only for the Israelites to be spared judgment and to walk free, but and also for it to lay a foundation for the later arrival into our world of Jesus. When Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30, he went out into the wilderness. John the Baptist saw him as he came over the brow of a hill. John the Baptist pointed his finger and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The first four words proclaimed about Jesus. But three, behold the Lamb. A Lamb was slain, people could be freed of judgment. Jesus was slain and we are free of our judgment. And it's amazing to note that in this most pivotal text, the Bible tells us that at the time of its first ever occurrence, the feast of Passover, God said, when you celebrate it, you celebrate this feast with your family. In fact, when you read it, you will see in verse three, it says each family. Verse four, a family. Share with another family. Divide the animal according to the size of each family. It's family, 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 family. There is zero provision in this text for a person to celebrate Passover by themselves. In fact, if you read on in, the, in the, the first five books of the Bible, God gives some increased clarity. He says later on, when you've got aliens living among you, that meaning by aliens, people of another race, then they are to celebrate with one of your families. But if a family is too small, then let them have a big Christmas dinner with another family. But nobody can celebrate this festival by themselves. And when I read that, I was just struck with the reality that needs to hit every single one of us. And that is, you can't enter into this faith, into this belief in the Lamb of God, Jesus, without entering into a family. It is family that is at the center of the heartbeat of God for us as His people. In fact, when you think about it, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they exist, the Trinity, three in one, in family. They said in the book, of, the book of Genesis, come let us go down and check out this tower that the men are building. We know it is the Tower of Babel, but they were acknowledging, we are in family. We are an us. We have a family, a community. We are together. We are not alone. When they made Adam, the Bible tells us that God's first observation about people was that people don't do well when they're not in family. He said to Adam, it is not good that you are here all by yourself. So I'm gonna put you to sleep, take part of you out of you so that then I can put you with you and you will then become a whole unit and you will know community, you will be part of a family and your life will be as God intended it to be. If God ever finds a person who is alone, then right there, God begins to get involved. Bible says in, in the book of Psalms, chapter 68 and verse six, that he sets the lonely into family. He is in family, Adam was in family. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, takes over really the narrative of the Old Testament 
as he goes from being a man with a wife who cannot bear children to then giving birth to Isaac, then to Jacob, then to the tribes of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, is all about a family. We are a family faith. Abraham is our father in the sight of God, not our leader. This is not like a club that you join. It's not not a corporation that you're part of. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you need a church so you can put a box next to it. Every believer is called to be part of a family. Faith is a family. God lives in family. His heartbeat for you and me is family. In fact, We've got this in, in the book of uh, Exodus, but then when you jump over to the New Testament, and I'm just gonna switch translations here just because it reads the way I want it to read. Uh, but in the, book of, in the book of Matthew and chapter 22, the Bible is talking in a passage where Jesus is being asked a question by the Sadducees with the intention that it will trip up Jesus and expose him as being fallible and not knowledgeable and someone who really doesn't really know what they're talking about. And they asked Jesus a question. And the question was, what is the greatest commandment? When Jesus gave an answer to the question, he said, I'm not gonna give you one commandment, I'm gonna give you two. And he said, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What's that got to do with family? So glad you asked. When Jesus has asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? He begins his answer by saying, well, the first half of this great commandment is you must love God. If you've done our DNA course, you would have heard this, but it's an important foundation for our message today. You must love God. Why? Because if you don't have a relationship of love with God, your life is just gonna be messed up from the start. God is the only one who can give you enough love, enough grace, enough acceptance, enough peace that you can truly be a functional and beneficial human being to the other people you meet. Without God's love resonating in your spirit, you have a high degree of chance of inflicting harm on others, living a life of arrogance, pride, dupliciousness. So you know, you can't really live this life without getting the love that you need from God. If you wanna fix your marriage, get more in love with God. If you wanna be a better person, fall more in love with God. That will give us the strength we need to live the kind of life God wants us to live. But then Jesus said, and the second one is you need to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, in between the two commandments, Jesus throws out this one. He says, and the second is like it, like it. If you read the New Living Translation, it says the second is equally important. In the New King James Bible, it says the second is like unto it. And in the Greek, it literally means the second is inseparable from the first. Jesus is not saying, well, here's the main one, and the second one is its distant cousin. He is saying these two commandments are actually two halves of one whole commandment. 
all the law and the prophets, the totality of God's most important commandment is that you must love God wholeheartedly and love people fervently. This is the only way we can summarize God's will for us. Because when we love Him, we then get drawn outward into a love for others. The first is vertical, the second is horizontal. And they form the basis of the kind of life that God wants us to have. When you love Him, you live in love. When you've got His love, you begin to extend His love. And then this miraculous thing begins to take place. You begin, I begin to form love with people around me. And right there, you could call that love environment a family. It doesn't matter really its nucleus, its shape, what makes it up. It is a functioning family unit that exists through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the will of God for all of us, friends, that we are part of His faith family, that we live in relationship with Him, that we then find the strength we need to live in relationship with others. And then Jesus goes on and He said, and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word hang that's used here in the Greek is only used in the Scriptures seven times. Five out of seven are in direct reference to the cross. It's used in Luke 22 where the Bible says that two thieves were hung with Jesus on that, on that cross. In Galatians chapter three, we mentioned this verse last week where we talked about cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. That word hung is the same word as Jesus uses here, hang. Five di direct references to the cross. I put it to you today that there are actually six. That what Jesus is actually doing and as only he can do as he's throwing in at the end of the statement. You wanna know what God wants for you? He wants you to love me, love God, and he wants you to love people. And I'm not gonna leave you alone in that pursuit. I'm gonna literally step in and pay the ultimate price so that that is not an out there need that you can never achieve. I am gonna purchase through my death and resurrection open access for you to be able to connect with God whenever you like. He's only ever gonna be a prayer away. And when you run out of love, you can reach out to Him and find it so that you can then become a functional human being who can enjoy a love relationship with others. The cross is the cure for families. The cross is the birthplace of relationship with God and people. If you believe that, give the Lord some praise right now. And it is through the cross that we not only get the power that we need, but we are also given the challenge that we live our lives in open, honest relationship with others. So if this is the will of God, I believe the will of God summarized in totality is that you and I would live our lives out of a meaningful relationship with God whose commandments are not burdensome, who doesn't ask you to follow Him so that He can ruin your life. You will never find a genuine worshiper of Jesus who is saying, yep, it's the worst decision I've ever made. You will never find that. For all the pundits who wanna throw out there that Christianity exists to control and restrict people, you will only ever find genuine worshipers of Jesus saying, it has absolutely changed my life for the better. Freed me of my addiction, given me a purpose in my life, healed my marriage, blessed my life. 
I mean, that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, you cannot, you cannot be part of a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center in New Zealand, residential, without being part of a Christian one. Why? Because it is faith in Jesus that both gives people their power to overcome addictions and enough love to want to hang out with people who still are. It, 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 this is so important, right? This is the ball game. Christianity is why you want to live in our country. It is the bedrock of what has formed our land. So, so we have these commandments that are massive challenges, and then we realize that the whole purpose of God for us is summarized, and God wants us to enjoy an open, honest relationship with Him and meaningful relationships with one another. If that's the will of God, family, faith, family, then where is the devil going to center his attack? The answer is self-obvious. I believe the devil measures his success by the degree to which he can separate people from an open, honest relationship with God and from meaningful relationships with other people. In our world that has increasingly become about performance and materialism and achievements and getting ahead of the Joneses, where they tell us, sociologists tell us, that we've now got a million Facebook friends, but most people can't even tell you one real friend that they have. We live in a world where we can quickly see that the degradation of family is evidence of the devil being at work. The devil wants to break up families. He wants to fill hearts of people with pride, with, with self-centeredness. He wants to make us filled with lust. He wants us to walk away from covenant relationships. He wants us to harbor bitterness and not release those who have forgiven us. The devil is set on an agenda. I want to lower the quality of your connection. Because my friends, the will of God for you and me is that we have genuine, deep connection with other people and with God. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, it tells us that uh, a man who isolates himself, a woman who isolates herself, seeks their own desire. They rage against all wise judgment. Why? Because when you are isolated from people, you don't have an autonomous life. You have an easily destroyed life. Yes, people can hurt you, but people can also help you. And my friend, above and beyond that, God is the only one who's got enough love for you to live the kind, you and I to live the kind of life that He intends for us to live. Isn't it amazing that in, in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 11, in verse 1, it'll jump up on your screen hopefully. We've got Jesus being asked a question by his disciples. You need to understand this is the only question that Jesus' disciples ever asked him to teach them something. They said, would you teach us how to pray? Because your relationship with God reveals an intimacy that we have never seen. And Jesus said, okay, if you're gonna learn prayer, then here's how it starts. To a people who were trying to get their head around how Jesus connected with God. He said, when you pray, say, our Father. We could go on. Every word is amazing. But in two words, Jesus flipped the script. He said, when you pray, you're not praying to an austere, removed figure. 
When you pray, you're not even praying to Elohim, the God who is almighty. The Jews understood that. You're not praying to Jehovah. They, they understood that. When you pray, you are praying to your Father. Our Father. Then the next couple of words he said, he said, your kingdom come. In other words, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom with a king. It's a family with a father. So everything about the kingdom of God is about family. If it's about family, if everything about our faith is a family deal, then what that means for you and me is that everything about the kingdom flows through relationships. Now we know this intuitively. How does your life get impacted? Relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with others. So God's whole desire is that you and I would enjoy deep relationship with Him and with other people. Put it another way. The moment we try to do anything in our faith without relationship, it ceases to be kingdom activity. Everything about the kingdom is about relationship. Everything God desires for us is relationship. If it isn't family, it isn't kingdom. If it's kingdom ministry, it's relational. If it isn't relational, then it isn't kingdom. Does this make sense? In 1 John chapter 20, we've got Jesus, uh, sorry, we've got the writer giving us one of the worst verses probably in all the Bible. It's so challenging. He says, if anyone says, I love God, yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, by the way, when it says brother here, it means Christian brother, not, not nuclear brother, not my brother Brent, but my brother Christopher. Chris White from the lads, my brother from another mother, uh, does not love his brother who he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. It is foreign to the nature of our faith to believe that you can have a relationship with God without an outflow of family love in your life. Malachi chapter four, verse six is the last verse of the Old Testament. And it says that when he comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, family, relationship, connection, bonds, community, or the whole land will be covered with a curse. And we see that unless there is a strong connectedness, relationships that are strong and foundational, that build people together with other people, it is a cursed life. If we think about the increase to your taxes to pay for welfare, we can really stem it all back and say if we had community, then we wouldn't have to hire people to do half of the things. Why is it that there's so many Christian social workers, teachers, and nurses? I'll tell you why. Love relationship with God makes you wanna be a blessing to other people in your world. It just draws it out of you. And I believe with all my heart that the will of God for you and me is that we would be committed to family. 
that we be committed to the ministry of loving God wholeheartedly and loving people fervently. Let me give you four points before we wind this up. The first one is that God cares more about our relationships than our accomplishments. Guys, we gotta get this clear. If this is what Jesus is saying, if this is what we see beginning with the Passover, if it's echoed in so many scriptures, then we've gotta realize that God is more interested in our relationships than our accomplishments. When Jesus is saying love God and love people, what's he pointing to? The only two things in this world that will pass into the next world. When you think about your life and everything that you put your hand to and what occupies our time and our priorities, it is important that we take a sanity moment and realize your job doesn't go to heaven. Your house doesn't go to heaven. Your car doesn't go into eternity. The places you've been or the number of Instagram followers you have are not going to count for squat when you get to heaven. God is more interested in our relationships than our accomplishments. You know, what, when, we, when we understand that God is saying, hey, you gotta love people, and if you don't, you clearly don't love me. When you see him saying, man, you better be invested in the lives of people or else your life is gonna be cursed. I want you to know it's not because God is angry with people. He is saying, don't waste this few years of pilgrimage that you get on this earth. At the end of every person's life, the Bible says that the quality of what you've done with your life is going to be assessed. And your works are gonna pass through a test of fire. And everything you've done with your life is going to be revealed to be either wood, hay, and stubble, flammable objects, or gold, silver, and precious stones that endure that fire. And the Bible says the, the fire will reveal what you've done with the life God gave you. Here's the thing, everything temporal stays. Everything eternal goes. Gold is people. Silver is people. Precious stones, people. Whatever you do for people, for relationship, for others, that will go into the next life. So right now, I think it's pretty smart for us to just sit back for a sec and say, I better make sure that the top priority in my life, listen, go out there, have a great career, have a great life, travel the world, do it all, but never make the pursuit of what stays in this world central to your mission. You need to be refreshed, experiences will bless you, own a home, but fill it up with people and bless them with the abode that God gave you. Amen, amen. Number two, it is important that we know that God's family is based on covenant, not a contract. God's family is based on covenant, not a contract. It's covenant. When God said, I, I love you, it's covenant. When he said, I'm committed to you, it's covenant. God is a covenantial God. This is important because in our world, we understand more and more relationships in the light of a contract than we do a covenant. This is why people can read the Bible. I mean, I've been reading 1 Samuel recently, and it struck me how weird it is to people to read 1 Samuel and see the relationship between David and Jonathan and say, David must have been gay. What a strange thing when you understand that what nearly took him out was that he looked out the window of his palace 
and saw a naked girl having a shower and risked it all for his clearly heterosexual tendencies. What David had with Jonathan was the bond of a relationship that formed a covenantial friendship. Every man needs a covenant friend. Men that are gonna be there with you. Men who see you at your worst moments. Men who see your vulnerability, who encourage you when you're down to get back up. The whole nature of God is God is pro-covenant. And when you get to God and you start to understand God, then covenant begins to make more and more sense as our other areas of depravity are replaced by the purity of His love. God's love for us is not contractual, it's covenantial. If you make your relationships about contracts, then you use people for what you want and then you discard them. But we don't worship a God of contract. The reason why we've got so many verses that we love to quote, like even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Even when I fall down, He picks me up again. Even though we know that God's relationship with us is not based around how we perform or how good we look, but about His unending love for us, it's because God is a covenant God. Come on, if you believe that, why don't you give Him some praise? See, contracts become transactional. Covenant relationships are transformational. And God wants you and I to enjoy covenant relationships because they truly will change our lives. In First Peter, uh, sorry, in the book of Romans, chapter one, you've got an amazing passage of scripture beginning in verse 28 where the Bible talks about people and the characteristics that they begin to take on board when they no longer value the knowledge of God. And it says, when they no longer value the knowledge of God, furthermore, having forsaken the knowledge of God, they've given themselves over and have become filled with slander, gossip, malice, anger. They disobey their parents. They are filled with all kinds of You know, it's just amazing when you start to see it. And then at the end of it, in verse 31, it says this. They have no fidelity. No fidelity. No fidelity. By fidelity, the Bible is literally saying that they have lost their ability to stay faithful to relationships. They break their promises. Another translation literally says they break their promises. See, the amazing thing about God is He never walks away from us. And not just in, when you get married, that's a covenant, by the way. God wants you and I to take covenant seriously. I said this in the last service, but let me say it again, that, you know, Christians have become more consumerist even about church communities. We've got to get it straight. You only bear fruit in a church when you're planted in it. Every time you replant something, a plant, it'll look really bad for the first few years and then it'll come to health and then it'll bear fruit. Covenant relationships go beyond good seasons. They do. I'm not saying that once you're in a church, you're there forever, but I'm certainly saying that we need to think about covenant and the covenantial people that are in our life in light of what the scripture teaches. The third point that I got for you this morning is that faith is a family and not 
a dynasty or a dynasty, whatever way you want to say that word. I don't know which way is right, I just know Jillian's going to tell me that one is wrong. But when you think about our faith, it's important to know that our faith is not a, a dynasty or a dynasty. It's not, it's not an elite club. It's not protected by God. A dynasty is like, here is our wealth, and we pass it from generation to generation, whether it's you know, Kennedy or Bush or Royal or whatever. We have a dynasty, and we pass it from generation to generation. But the Christian faith is not a dynasty. It is a family, a crazy family that has an open adoption policy. It's amazing. When, read with me in, in Romans chapter 4, 8 and verse 15. It says, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, daughtership. And by that spirit, we cry, the spirit of Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, that's crazy, and co-heirs with Christ. Stop the ship. Co-heirs with Christ, yes. I'm saying to you, God calls you, Jesus calls you, brother, sister, He embraces you, calls you His family, not His slave, not His second cousin. Not a person he's just remotely related to but doesn't really want to acknowledge. He's walking up to heaven's throne saying, this is my posse, my home is my family. We are in it together. And friends, I believe that is one of the most revolutionary things in all the world, that God openly adopts us into His family. What impact does that have? Firstly, that firstly means that you have not only a natural family, but you have also a faith family. That will change your life because the moment you became a Christian, you became part of a new family. I'm not being weird with this, but I am saying that if you feel like your family has been bound in generations or whatever kind of crazy, the moment you came to Christ, you got a new kind, not a crazy, but of normal, a function, a wholeness, blessing. You got adopted into God's family. He received you in our, your dysfunctional state and transforms us into a truly functional and blessed state. The kings of Israel, the kings of Israel are all listed in the Bible and they all are attributed to a father. One source of fatherhood is King David. The other source of fatherhood is their paternal dad. The difference between the two is the kind of life that they led. It's amazing, because if you did evil, then you will always, it'll always say, did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father, and list the guy's name, did. If you did well, if you're a worshiper of God, then it will always say, you know, was worshiped God, was faithful to God as his father David did. You can change your genealogy for an open spirit of adoption the moment that you come to Christ. Yeah, come on, that'll rock your world. The band are gonna join me up on stage. It's got a deeper impact than that, team. It means that if you have faith in Jesus, you can start forming your own family. You don't have to wait until you're older. What it means is that if you are a believer in Jesus, an open spirit of adoption must be in your family. There must be something. I'm not saying that you should all go out there and adopt children. 
but I am saying that if your family is closed off to you, the kids, and no more, well, I want you to know that's not the will of God. The way that we will change the world is by loving other people and including them in our lives. That is the Bible. That is the Bible. If you're a young person who's just found faith and you come from 14 kinds of crazy, well, find some other young people, find some older people in the church and just make yourself a new family. This is it right here. This is the place where you find a new family. Everybody's got a family. The spirit of our faith is a family spirit. And the final point as we wind this up, which I can't remember, <laughs> is that it took incarnation to bring us salvation. What's amazing about our Jesus is that He didn't just wave a wand and say you're saved. Well done. <laughs> he had to come close. He had to come close. He had to be incarnate, God incarnate. It takes incarnation to bring salvation. You can't change a life remotely. You can't. If you want to bring change to a life, you need a relationship. Everybody's looking for a coach or a mentor. What they're really looking for is a mum or a dad. Our world can be changed through Christians. We are the hope of the world, right? When you see you are the light of the world, don't take your light and hide it under a bushel. See, don't take your life and live it closed. That's what you're seeing. Open up. Fill a spare seat in your car. Fill an empty seat at your dining room table. Grab some young people that could be going the wrong direction. Bring them along to youth. That's what it means. Dysfunction is created in isolation. And it's cured through proximity. If you wanna change the world, put that person in a nucleus. How amazing is our faith that our God drew near to us when we least deserved it. The Message Bible translates John 1 and it says that God put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He said, I'm not gonna be even just like looking at your problem. I'm jumping into your problem. I am right there with you. I can show you a better way. I can help you with this problem. And I'm staying until you've got the problem sorted out. And then when he saw that the seed of the problem solution was in the lives of his people, he said, now the power comes and I'm going and the work is up to you. I want you to know that every person in this room is part of God's family and it's a redemptive family and together we have been put here to change the world. Come on, if you believe that, would you give the Lord some praise right now? Come on. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor John Cameron. If you would like to find out more about Arise Church, check out arisechurch.com or find us on YouTube.